0: Welcome to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast. I'm Zach Miller and I'm still Martin Cook, And today is another episode of our Sensory Series where we cover 10 films from each decade spanning from 1920 to 2020. As the days start to blend together during these uncertain times, we're here for you, tirelessly plugging away through a century in the world of filmmaking. Still hanging in there, Martin?
1: Yeah, I'm doing all right. I think it's, uh, surprisingly, this past week went really quickly. Some some days and hours seem to drag on and on and on during this quarantine period, mm-hmm. but uh, this past week zipped by really, really fast. So I think maybe I'm better than I was even last week, so that's not too bad.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just noticed the months are flying by. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I guess it's, you know, it's better than it seeming like forever.
1: Yeah I guess it depends on how we feel and how productive we are.
0: <laughs> yeah I mean it's getting pretty monotonous but at least we we have this to look forward to. <laughs> exactly
1: exactly we're hanging in there and we're uh, not doing as badly as as some are out there particular movie theaters which mm-hmm. which aren't doing too well. I've seen recently a number of News items about AMC possibly filing for bankruptcy. I'm sure a bunch of the other theaters might end up having to do the same thing.
0: That's a real shame because AMC is my go-to. You know, I have the uh, AMC Stubbs membership where I can go and see three movies a week, unlimited, even in Dolby for 20 bucks a month, and that would uh, that would break my heart to see them go under. But, I mean, bank, bankruptcy isn't the end of the world, so...
1: No, it's true. They it, can, they can if, restructure...
0: Yeah, if anybody's going to make it out of this, it's going to be them because they are the biggest theater chain in America. So,
1: Exactly, so, yeah. and plus that, that uh, subscription model may actually become the norm if mm-hmm. theater chains and franchises need guaranteed income. So that's a positive for me because we still don't have anything like that up in Canada. On the plus side we've seen the resurrection of the drive-in movie theater just in time for us to be doing a podcast on the fifties. That's just, it's amazing. I'm going to have to try to find if there's one around in Toronto because, uh, by all accounts, they're starting to open up now that we're into spring and that's uh, that sounds great. I haven't been to a drive-in movie in probably a couple of decades, I would say.
0: Yeah. I've never been to one. So that'd be a cool thing to experience. Uh, would really suck to see all these theater chains go under because that's kind of what our website was built on. So if they go down, we go down. Exactly. <laughs> we'll, we'll find something to talk about. But <laughs> I'm sure we <laughs> for will. For the most part.
1: One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, rock. We're going to rock around the clock
0: tonight. But... So today we're covering the 1950s. This is usually where I do a little intro ...of the decade to set the scene and get you all in the right mood, but there were some really major developments in the world of movies that I can't cover by myself in a 30-second soundbite. Most notably, the death of the old Hollywood studio system, the red scare seeping into the industry, and the rise of a brand new way to watch moving pictures known as television... So before we get into the movies, we're going to talk a little bit about each of those so the films we cover are put in their proper historical context. First off, the death of the studio system. I'll try not to overcomplicate this, but the studio system was basically the practice of studios monopolizing and controlling every aspect of movie making from top to bottom. Every part of production, from writing to distribution to owning their own theater chains, was done in-house by the big-time studios from the 20s to the 50s. The big dogs were MCM, Warner Brothers, Paramount, and RKO, with Fox, Universal, Columbia, and United Artists getting smaller pieces of the pie. Movie moguls were emperors of their own domain in this day. Studio heads like Louis B. Mayer, Jack Warner, and Adolph Zucker had unimaginable power over the industry. And if some of the old stories are be believed, they made Harvey Weinstein look like Martin Luther King. <laughs> they ruthlessly ran Hollywood with an iron fist, signing everyone from writers to actors to long-term exclusive contracts that gave little to no creative freedom to anyone. They were above the law and covered up scandal wherever they could from rape to pedophilia and even murder in some cases anything to protect the image of the studio and their actors who were nothing but commodities in their eyes. This all began to change in 1948 when a federal antitrust lawsuit was brought against the big studios in order to prevent block booking, which is when a studio forces a theater to buy multiple movies from a studio or none at all. In order to show the big-time A-list movies, they'd have to buy a certain number of low-budget, low-quality B-movies as well. The big studios were slowly but surely forced to break into smaller and smaller pieces to comply with the Supreme Court ruling against them. This ruling, along with the rise of television in the 50s, effectively ended the studio system, and with it, the golden age of Hollywood.
1: So, not only did it bring about the end of the the studio system, one of the big fall-on effects of that was actors and actresses, and writers and directors, and everybody else basically ended up becoming free agents as well right. because the the big hold and so <laughs> we lost people like louis b Mayer and jack warder having absolute control But it saw the rise of another group of Hollywood power players known as agents, of course, (laughs) because with these free agent actresses and actors and actresses and directors, that meant more money going around to them, more money flowing to the talent, people stepping in, and agents like Lou Wasserman became sort of the the new power around town. All that started to shift in the 50s as well. But the other big development in the 50s was... The Red Scare and the uh, Hollywood Blacklist and the House Committee on Un-American Activities. So while many people associate the House Un-American Committee with Joe McCarthy and the hearings in the 1950s, the committee had actually been around since the 30s. And as a senator, McCarthy was actually never a member of that committee because it was a House committee. He was in charge of a few other committees in the 50s. However, with the U.S. and Soviet Union fighting on the same side in World War II, most anti-communist rhetoric died down for a little bit during the war. After the war ended, though, the USSR emerged as the next great enemy. So before the war, the committee had been given a list of suspected communists in Hollywood, which included actually such big names as Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, and Katharine Hepburn. After the war, committee investigations began to ramp up again, driven in part by a warning from Walt Disney... Your, your boy, Zach, Walt Disney, yep.
0: <laughs>
1: who was pissed off at his animators for trying to unionize and, and for holding a strike, so he accused communist agitation for being behind it all.
0: That's just good business. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a, little, a little bit of a cynical power play on his part, but, you know. In 1946, the publisher of The Hollywood Reporter published a list of suspected Communist Party members, House an American Activities Committee, decided to hold a new round of hearings. The first to testify that communists were everywhere and a real threat were, of course, Walt Disney and good old Ronald Reagan, who at that time was president of the Screen Actors Guild. A number of subpoenas were issued, about 63 in in that first tranche, Uh, but 10 people, mostly writers and a couple of directors, refused to testify. They became known as the Hollywood Ten, and they were charged with contempt of Congress and became the first people to be blacklisted in Hollywood. Although they had support from a number of fellow Hollywood personnel, including people like John Huston and Judy Garland, their studios lined up very quickly to say that they would never be allowed to work again. One of the ten, screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, in a totally boss quote, I love this, said of his conviction for contempt of Congress, for which he served one year in prison, quote, As far as I was concerned... It was completely justified verdict. I had contempt for that Congress, and have had contempt for several sins. <laughs> Brilliant. Anyway, from there, the blacklist just continued to grow. When one of the Hollywood Ten agreed to testify and name names, he was released from prison and reinstated in the industry. That began another troubling trend of people ratting out friends and colleagues, or even just coming up with names at random in order to avoid punishment themselves. Some continued to stand against what they legitimately saw as infringement on rights of Americans under the U.S. Constitution, specifically the First Amendment. Others, however, seemed only too willing to testify to, and throw names around and risk ruining the careers of many colleagues. Some of the more willing testimony came from people like director Elia Kazan and screenwriter Bud Schulberg from On the Waterfront, a movie we'll be reviewing today. By the end of the 50s, people had luckily started to regain their common sense and the appetite for which hunts had died down a little bit. One of the key figures in the breaking the blacklist was, again, Dalton Trumbo, who had continued to write during this time and had actually scripted 17 different movies, just not receiving credit for any of them, Mm -hmm. and at massively reduced pay. Finally, by 1960, director Otto Preminger announced that Trumbo would script his next film, Exodus, and star Kirk Douglas fought really hard for Trumbo to receive screen credit for having written Spartacus, which he did. Within a short time, the blacklist faded. However, it has to be noted the utter devastation that this wreaked on Hollywood. Most weren't as lucky as Trumbo to be able to continue to work secretly and then be restored in the 60s. Hundreds, if not thousands of people lost their jobs and careers never again to work in Hollywood.
0: That was a real tragedy. Um, I I am very anti-communist, but I'm also pro-free speech, so... I always hate when people are persecuted unjustly for their political beliefs. Everybody should be able to voice their own opinion and then be tried in the court of public opinion. Either you like what they say or you don't, but everybody should be allowed to say whatever the hell they want, whether it's whether you agree with it or not. This is one of the darkest times in American history, and it's just a damn shame that so much talent was purged from Hollywood for so long I mean, as you said, Trumbo was one of the ones to kind of stay afloat through the whole thing, but there were a lot of talented people that lost their jobs completely unjustly. It was so Orwellian, in a way. I mean, this is like the thing that happened in Nazi Germany. You never think of something like this happening in America, you know, the land of the free. So for that to occur, it's it's a stain on Hollywood, but it needs to be remembered because... If you don't remember history, it's bound to repeat itself. Absolutely. So, now a little bit about the rise of television. TV, the tube, the small screen, the telly, as the Brits call it, the idiot box. That soul-sucking, mind-numbing box in the living room that served as a third parent and primary guardian to generations of kids for the better part of 70 years. I'll try to keep this short and sweet so it doesn't sound like a film school lecture. But the word television comes from the ancient Greek word tele, meaning far, and the Latin word visio, meaning sight. While rudimentary experimental TV technology existed since around 1900, it wasn't until the 1950s that the technology became readily available to the average everyday Joe. In 1950, there were only 3 million TV sets in America. By the end of the decade, there were 55 million. It homogenized cultural tastes in a way that has never been seen before or since. The image of a nuclear family huddled around the set basically sums up 1950s culture, along with apple pie and a white picket fence. Shows like I Love Lucy, The Jack Benny Show, Playhouse 90, *Craft Television Theater, The Andy Griffith Show, The Twilight Zone, and The Honeymooners dominated culture, and the ads that ran during these shows became the products that people bought. Instead of going to the local theater to catch a newsreel before a flick, people stayed inside and got their news from the big three networks, NBC, CBS, and ABC. More and more people stopped going to the movies, which obviously had a lasting impact on the film industry that they never fully recovered from. Film studios were no longer the tastemakers. Never was a culture so homogenized than it was in the 50s, and that was in no small part due to the rise of television.
1: It's interesting that it was sort of a double whammy impact on the film industry because not only were people interested in what television had to offer, but it also corresponded at the same time in the 50s with a migration of people out to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And so it was a lot easier for people to just sit at home and watch The Idiot Box than it was to go into the city, into the big downtown theaters. It's it's interesting to note how things have changed. Now we think of movie theaters as being suburban things. There's all the... The, the AMCs and the, and the big multiplexes out in the, suburb, the suburban areas and not as much in city centers in downtown areas, but it, it mm. definitely didn't used to be like that. And right. it certainly wasn't like that in the 30s, 40s and 50s. The other one final just quick note on on TV, just a little Canadian plug, if I might. On uh, July 1st, 1958, the signal of CBC, Canada's national broadcaster, was extended from coast to coast, becoming the longest television network in the world at the time. And also, the first continuous broadcasting of breaking news was probably also by the CBC, which in October of that year broadcast breaking news from the Spring Hill mining disaster Mm. in Nova Scotia. So... TV really didn't take long from the beginning of the decade to the end before that became what everybody was paying attention to, as you noted.
0: Yep, exactly. So, yeah, that that might have sounded a bit long-winded, but we feel like it was really important to highlight those three things because it really changed the entertainment industry as a whole, not just the film industry, but culture. So, on to the movies that we're going to be covering today. We're going to cover the first five This is going to kind of be a trend for us. We're going to cover the first five and then go on and cover the second five in uh, part two. So what are we covering today, Martin?
1: So today, the first five we're going to be covering in this part are starting in 1950, Sunset Boulevard, then 1952, Singing in the Rain, 1953, Shane, 1954, Seven Samurai, also 1954, On the Waterfront. And then part two, we will cover Rebel Without a Cause from 1955, Angry Men from 1957, Vertigo from 1958, Some Like It Hot from 1959, and finally Ben-Hur, also from 1959.
0: So, let's kick it off. Sunset Boulevard in 1950. It's the second film noir directed by Billy Wilder that we're covering in our Century series after Double Indemnity. It stars William Holden as Joe Gillis, a struggling low-level screenwriter who is seduced by an aging, batshit crazy ex-silent film star Norma Desmond, played by Gloria Swanson, who was both of our pick for Best Actress of the 20s. It's meta in a lot of ways, considering Gloria Swanson was herself an aging ex-silent film star at the time. Cecil B. DeMille plays himself, and there are cameos from old silent film stars, including our old pal Buster Keaton from The General. Sunset Boulevard was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning three. It was number 12 on the original AFI 100 list in 1998 and moved down to 16 on the 2007 list. It has two quotes from the AFI 100 Years 100 Quotes list. Number seven is this one.
2: All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up.
0: And number 24.
2: I am big. It's the pictures that got small.
0: So, the story, as I said, Joe Gillis is a struggling screenwriter at the end of his rope. He's out of ideas, and he, can get a writing, he can't get a writing job to save his life. On the run from a collection agency looking to repo his car, he loses them by swerving into the driveway of its decrepit, seemingly abandoned Hollywood mansion. As it turns out, the house belongs to Norma Desmond, an aging, delusional silent film star who clings desperately to the past in any way she can. He wants a job, and she wants a return to relevance. So she commissions him to doctor her 400-page mess of a script. As he sinks her claw, as she sinks her claws into Gillis, it becomes much more than a writing job. He becomes a kept man. She houses him, feeds him, clothes him, and eventually fucks him. Their doomed relationship ends when she hits her breaking point after being rejected by her old director Cecil B. DeMille. Gillis tries to leave her, only to be shot dead by the insane ex-actress. What'd you think?
1: There's there's just so much in this movie. <laughs> it's just packed. I've seen it a couple times before, but every time I watch it, I, I notice some more about it. It's not only about you know, the fallen glory of former film stars and the desperation of never-has-beens like the screenwriter, but it's also in a big way about the decline of the film industry in general. Mm-hmm. And in this way I think Wilder was so prescient in that the movies about w- the end of one era in in this case sort of the the silent film era around Norma Desmond's character, but it's really in a, in a broader sense about what was starting to happen in the movie industry then too in 1950. So it's just it's about so much. There's it's just such an intelligent movie. It's um as you said, it's it's really meta. It's meta before that was even really a thing. Mm. It's just so inside baseball on so much of what was going on in Hollywood at the time. And I think it's got to be one of the first that, at least one of the first major films to focus so much on the inner workings of Hollywood, but even more so than that, to do it in such a negative way. I think up <laughs> to that point, Hollywood was always glamorized uh, largely by by itself, by the industry, by movies that had uh, scripts or productions going on in them. And this was really exposing the dark side of this, this big thing that most people would think of as glamorous. It's It's just an incredible movie in many ways.
0: Yeah, I love how the opening shot begins in the gutter. Like It tells you what you're getting into. There's a gutter with the uh, label Sunset Boulevard on it to tell you what street it's on, and that's the title card. But it also doubles as telling you, yeah, this, this movie isn't about anything happy or bright or inspiring. Like This is down in the gutter. We're going to show you the proverbial gutter of Hollywood, and that's what they did. I mean, nobody's really that successful. <laughs> Nobody <laughs> really makes it it's uh it's really dark I love this movie too I think it's the third or fourth time I've seen it and it's one of those that gets better every time
1: agreed it's 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 such a tragic story and the real tragedy isn't even the murder it starts off yeah. with the murder you know that's gonna happen but the real tragedy is is the lives that these people are living it's it's just really well done and and definitely double indemnity was pretty dark this might be the darkest Billy Wilder gets.
0: Yeah, I agree, and I think that's why he does a complete 180 in his career in Some Like It Hot, which we'll get to next episode. But, yeah, uh, (laughs) it's really funny. It's like a dark comedy in its own way, just because of the the over-the-top performance by Gloria Swanson.
1: (laughs) She uh, she was amazing. She she was really
0: good. And uh, for old school fans of the Carol Burnett show, <laughs> the, the Nora Desmond character that Carol Burnett plays is really spot on. And I would encourage anybody that's seen this movie to go check that out because it's, it's really on point.
1: Apparently she was, uh, she wasn't like that at all. The oh, yeah. uh, 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 glorious Swanson, she had gracefully accepted her, her fall from from popularity and was was quite content in in mostly her retirement, but the character was partly based on some other film stars who who hadn't had such an easy fall from grace, including people like Mary Pickford who lived in mm. basically in isolation, and and a few others, and I guess her and uh, Mary Pickford and Gloria Swanson were um, were quite good friends, and. She really wanted to know what Pickford thought of the movie, and so invited her to the premiere. And I guess Pickford just was so overwhelmed by it. She she thought it was incredible. She loved it, but so overwhelmed by it that she basically left the theater in tears before even sticking around and talking to anybody else.
0: <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, that's tragic. I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's for a lot of people, it's hard to feel sorry for people that... You know, made millions of dollars and you know live in a giant mansion, but th- that that has its own uh, tragic accompaniment because exactly. when the fame dies down and that's all you've known since you were sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, it's. I mean, it's one of the most lonely existences you can have, especially since you have that much space to just roam around and. Hear the echoes of your own voice when you're in the in the ballroom, or <laughs> when you have a 16 room mansion and shit like that. So, yeah, it's it's hard not to feel some sympathy for Norma. Definitely, even though,
1: yeah, you're right for for people who are struggling to pay the rent and whatever. It seems like a pretty charmed existence, it, as you said. It comes with its own its own issues.
0: And it's interesting because um, in film school we read the original script for this and the beginning was completely different and I'm glad that they changed it. Cause I don't think it would have worked because we see William Holden's character Ellis in the Gillis. I mean, we see him, his body in the morgue and his corpse is talking to th- the fellow corpses in the morgue saying, Oh, how'd you die? And there's like this little kid saying like my dad drowned me and, yeah, it just starts like really weirdly dark and not really that funny. So I'm glad that they did what they did in the end.
1: Yeah, I think I think it definitely was a better, better beginning to the movie. And as you mentioned, it really has been listed most of the time as a dark comedy. It's not really laugh out loud funny, but there's still a number of Billy Wilder clever turns of phrases and things that he gets mm-hmm. in there that that are that are quite amusing.
0: And it's interesting that Wilder all kind of made noirs that didn't fit into the stereotypical noir. Because I think Maltese Falcon is probably, if you're looking for all the tropes of a noir, that's the one you would go to. Because Humphrey Bogart does play a detective. And when you think of noir, you think of hard detective, and that's what we're talking about a little bit with Double Indemnity. Yeah. But... This has all the tropes, but he manages to tweak it just enough to make it his own and not fall into. Oh, that's just that's just a classic noir.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, it's definitely an original in the in the in the noir genre. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm. Having. So let's move on then to 1952, Singing in the Rain. It's interesting that we've got these back-to-back because they're both actually looking at the changeover from silent pictures to talkies in a way. So this is another movie about the movie industry. It's an MGM musical that premiered March 27, 1952. It was one of the first films at MGM greenlit by Dory Chari, who had just taken over from the film giant Louis B. Mayer who had now uh, started Ease into retirement. It was originally conceived of by MGM producer Arthur Freed, the guy in charge of musicals at the studio, as a way of making use of his back catalog of songs. And so actually only two of the songs in the film are original to the movie. Singing in the Rain, for instance, was from a 1929 film called The Hollywood Review of 1929. Very original title. Mm -hmm. And Good Morning was from a 1939 film called Babes in Arms. And I wasn't actually aware of this. It was originally sung in that movie by Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. I think the more famous version is the one in this movie. And let's take a little listen to that right now. Good morning, good morning, we've talked the whole night through. Good morning, good morning to you. Just a fun, lively tune. So, in terms of tone, we're a long way away from Sunset Boulevard at this point. (laughs) The the movie was co-directed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donan, who was a former dancer himself, who first became interested in dancing and musicals after seeing the Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers film Flying Down to Rio. He choreographed the film with Kelly and was known as the king of the Hollywood musicals because he directed and, and produced later so many of them. Gene Kelly the star of this film, is often listed right alongside Fred Astaire as one of the greatest dancers and all-around performers in Hollywood history. He started out as a dancer and choreographer on Broadway before eventually establishing a career in Hollywood by the mid-40s. In one film, Anchors Away, from 1945, he famously danced with a cartoon mouse Jerry from Tom and Jerry. The movie was a big hit and his career really took off. He signed on with MGM in 1946, where he went on to make make most of his memorable films of his career. Debbie Reynolds, his co-star in this movie, was first discovered at the Miss Burbank pageant,
0: <laughs> where,
1: <laughs> Surprisingly, where both MGM and Warner Brothers wanted to sign her, and they actually ended up flipping the coin to see wow. who would sign her, and Warner Brothers won. But then within a couple of years, they stopped making musicals, so she shifted over to MGM. <laughs> She was later on famously involved in one of Hollywood's great scandals when her first husband, Eddie Fisher, was caught having an affair with Elizabeth Taylor, who was a good friend of Reynolds at the time. Reynolds is also famous, of course, for being the mother of Carrie Fisher, our our once and and forever Princess Leia, Mm -hmm. uh, with whom she had a close but complicated relationship. And after Carrie Fisher died in December of 2016, Debbie Reynolds died the very next day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The movie also s- stars Donald O'Connor, and a little bit more about him in a bit. It's also one of the very first appearances of Rita Moreno, one of only 15 people to have won the E Got. So go, Rita Moreno. And only one of five to have won a Got, if you include the Peabody. <laughs> So the story of Singing in the Rain, it's, it's that Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont, who's played by Gene Hagen, are silent movie stars, and the public assumes they're dating. When talkies start to take over, it throws the world upside down, especially after Lockwood falls in love with Kathy, played by uh, Debbie Reynolds. And everyone also begins to realize at that time that Lamont has an incredibly annoying voice and can't <laughs> sing at all. So uh, basically, she's not going to make it in talkies. And so in an effort to create his first hockey and save his career, Lockwood is going to have to come up with a lot of creative ideas. And also just for the hell of it, because it's musical, he's going to have to do a lot of singing and dancing. What did you think of Singing in the Rain?
0: This is actually the first time I've ever seen it.
1: Me too. I told that to a buddy of mine and he was absolutely appalled that, that I admitted that <laughs> <laughs> being a film buff, he's, he was just shocked that I hadn't seen singing in the rain.
0: Yeah. But this is one of the best things about this project that we're doing is we're going back and kind of scouring <laughs> what we can and watching films that we haven't seen before. I mean, a lot of them we have, but yeah, this I, I just never had an inclination to watch singing in the rain. And I know with your absolute disdain for musicals. <laughs> I'm not surprised that you hadn't seen it before. Um I was not all that impressed to be completely honest. Uh I know it's what is it, number I think it's either five or six on the FI top one hundred. Uh I know it's ahead of Gone with the Wind, which was kind of mind blowing. But I think Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood, uh, yeah. And clearly, they just love to jerk each other off like that. And I thought the story was interesting. And if they would have stayed faithful to the the plot that they constructed, then it would have been a better movie. But the a lot of the music numbers don't have anything to do with the story. No,
1: no, that's that's one of the things I generally don't like about musicals is when right. if if the song makes sense in context and furthers the story, then fine. But if it's just people are talking and then all of a sudden they burst out into song, it just throws me off so much that that's sometimes why I'm not huge on musicals.
0: Like visually, it was great. I mean, the, the choreography, the dancing, the 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 set design was all really, really well done but i just uh i i mean i laughed i i did like how insufferable <laughs> the, the voice of uh gene uh,
1: Jean, uh, Jean gene hagen the the actress yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah.
0: yeah. i just yeah <laughs> she was absolutely insufferable and i thought the uh the gags and the comedy bits were way better than the actual musical numbers
1: yeah i would i would agree with that uh the the guy that impressed me the most in this entire movie was Donald O'Connor.
0: Yeah. He plays Gene
1: Kelly's friend. I can't believe that he's not more Mm. well-known. That guy blew me away. His one, he has one big solo dance number where he's pretending to fall down half the time. He's flipping himself off of walls. Mm-hmm. That guy was unbelievable.
0: And in my yeah, opinion, like in this film, Bruce Lee, Jackie. Yeah, Jackie. He's <laughs> at
1: least the equal of Gene Kelly in this film. So I do not know why he's not more well known. Hey, I thought for me, he was absolutely the standout part of this film and possibly that one musical number, but mostly just because his, his dancing and, and acrobatics were just incredible.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I don't think Gene Kelly was the best dancer at his own movie.
1: No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> no, that guy, that guy blew me away. But you're right; the story kind of goes off the rails. It's not the greatest story. The singing and dancing is 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 good. I know a lot of people have this as the greatest musical of all time. It seems to be on most lists as that. I'm not sure I would agree. It was it was fun. There were definitely some fun moments. Gene Kelly does have a uh, sort of a, a magnetism to him, I guess, mm-hmm. which maybe yeah. Donald O'Connor doesn't. I'm not sure. If, again, not sure in this movie if he was Donald O'Connor's uh, equal in terms of dancing, but he's definitely got a charisma to him. But yeah, it was just for me. It was it was good. I didn't. I don't quite get the hype of it as the best musical of all time.
0: No, it definitely doesn't belong in the top ten movies of all time, as AFI has uh, you know coronated it. Uh, it is funny that Debbie Reynolds didn't know how to dance before this movie, and Fred Astaire actually <laughs> found her crying in the studio. Yeah, apparently point. Gene and,
1: Kelly was really mean to her.
0: Oh yeah, b- yeah Because he was of a that, total dick. Yeah. yeah. So he took uh, Fred Astaire took it upon himself to take her aside and kind of teach her how to dance, and. I mean, she she holds her own. She's no Ginger Rogers, but you know, she, she she does an all right job.
1: Apparently, one of the interesting things, just sort of a behind the scenes look, is that the voices where so there's this whole part of the movie for those of you who haven't seen it, where Gene, uh, what Gene uh, Hagen, her character is pretending to sing. And then behind a curtain, her voice is actually being dubbed by Debbie Reynolds' character. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, in the production of the film, that was actually Gene Hagen singing. <laughs>
0: okay. Because
1: she actually really did have a good voice. And actually, it was the other way around. They they switched the the overdubbing of the voices from Debbie Reynolds to Gene Hagen in other parts. Interesting. Yeah. So she played uh she she did pretty well of, of playing somebody who was trying to pretend to have a really terrible voice. She she was she was pretty funny as well actually.
0: Yeah, yeah, there uh, like I said it was when I think <laughs> I think the the music numbers were the worst part of the movie, which doesn't make for a good musical in my opinion. True. I, I I know singing in the rain more from a Clockwork Orange than I do from <laughs> from this, which is funny, because uh, you know, singing in the Rain's a lot more critically acclaimed than A Clockwork Orange. But uh, an interesting little aside story: Malvin McDowell, the star of A Clockwork Orange, ran into Gene Kelly at a Hollywood party one time, and Gene Kelly totally just snubbed him because he thought that. Stanley Kubrick and Malcolm McDowell just ruined his movie because, (laughs) because Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange regularly rapes people to singing in the rain. So I, I can get where he's coming from there, but I don't think it's, I don't think he should be so mad at Malcolm McDowell.
1: Yeah, no, clearly it's not, it's not Malcolm McDowell's problem. Uh, just a side note, Gene Hagen. I, I was pretty sure, but I just had to check. She she did receive an Academy Award nomination for for Best Supporting Actors for her role, mm. and it was the only the only um, nomination from uh, acting nomination from the movie.
0: Be sure to fight us in the comments section if you disagree. <laughs> we welcome it. So we're moving on to Shane, nineteen fifty three. It's a western directed by George Stevens, written by A.B. Guthrie Jr. and Jack Scher, and starring Alan Ladd as the titular Shane, Gene Arthur in her last film role, Van Helfen, Brandon DeWild, and Walter Jack Palance, who would later drop the Walter from his stage name and become known as simply Jack Palance. My first introduction to him was probably 1989's Batman. It's based on the 1949 novel of the same name by Jack Schaefer. It's a simple plot and a quintessential western movie. Shane is a morally upstanding lone gunman and a man of few words who lets his actions speak for him. He takes up with the Starrett family as a ranch hand, endearing himself especially to their little boy Joe. Rufus Riker, a cattle baron and the stereotypical Black Hat character, is running folks off their rightfully acquired land, so Shane is called into action despite his distaste for violence. violence. The reluctant hero tries to avoid a fight at every turn, but fights inevitably always come to him. Again, we've seen this dozens of times. In the climactic shootout, Shane, by himself, kills Riker and his gang, saves the Sterrett family farm, and splits. It was nominated for six Academy Awards, winning one for Best Cinematography. It's number five on the AFI 100 list, up from number 69 in the original list. Shane is 16 on the list of Top 100 Heroes. It's the number three Western, the number 53, 100 Years, 100 Cheers, and number 47 on the quotes list for this one. (laughs) thoughts it they
1: they the first thing that springs to mind watching this movie is just how they made a great use of the landscape and Mm. it's got to be one of the first color pictures we've seen that to actually really do that you know most of it was shot on location on a ranch in wyoming and man, the, the countryside is just so beautiful. And it was also, it was also one of the first films, this is 1953. I think the first film to use Cinemascope, the widescreen, was The Robe earlier that year. And I don't know if this was... <clears throat> they had different technologies, but I don't know if this was actually Cinemascope or some other brand, but this was shot on widescreen. And it was a perfect decision to do it that way. It's just so so incredible just the the background and, and everything so that's the first thing that stands out to me about this movie beyond beyond the story beyond the performances is just how beautifully shot it was um aside from that i mean it's quite a change for george stevens from the last time we saw him on our list which was for swing time so i guess that shows <laughs> yeah. he was a pretty versatile director <laughs> so good, for, good and he for directed
0: him. james dean and giant too exactly so and he won he won an oscar for that one so yeah he's all over the place yeah,
1: so it's so pretty impressive and the other thing is just jack palance he's just such a great villain <laughs> he's just mm-hmm. he's just so calm but at the same time menacing it's i guess that sort of became his trademark that in in many movies after that he became this villain character until sort of spoofing it a little bit with with his role in city slickers uh, later on
0: right but yeah, but that that jawline and that cheekbone structure just makes him yeah, look evil. Yeah, you know? just, <laughs> like, oh, he's so he he's was so born to good. do
1: that. So I was, yeah, I was, I was fairly impressed. As you said, the story's pretty straightforward. The acting didn't necessarily blow me away, but I think it is an iconic western for for a lot of reasons, and and so, my I I quite, I quite enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it's one of those that a lot of people. Don't even really know about because you see the uh you see the title it's just Shane you know there's uh there's really nothing that grabs you right off the bat I mean Alan Ladd isn't a household name anymore, and if you're gonna watch a western this probably wouldn't be the first one you pick, but this was really a, a, a trendsetter a trend setter in its time, especially since it was in Technicolor and Jesus Christ, that bar fight scene is one of the greatest action scenes I've ever seen before or since. Yeah, that was
1: really well done, just how incredibly well it was choreographed. And I'm not sure they built this little town, so I'm not sure Mm -hmm. whether that bar would have been in terms of how they filmed it. I'm not sure if it would have just been three walls. But at times it seemed like we saw four – so maybe they removed walls. But how they shot it like that in such a tight space uh, is also an incredible feat.
0: Yeah, the editing was fantastic. It was really violent too. I mean, there is blood all over the place. I mean, Shane is like fighting for his life. Oh, he's getting the
1: shit beat out of him at
0: times. He's getting chairs knocked over his head and thrown over tables, bottles smashing and – god damn yeah i was blown away if there's one thing to take away from this entire movie it's that bar fight scene for me
1: yeah it's also i i would like to point out the the final film credit for gene arthur somebody we first uh, talked about in mr smith goes to washington way back in 1939 so good uh, good send-off for her in, in her film career
0: she wasn't asked to do too much in this one.
1: I think she was semi-retired at that point, anyway, yeah. and was just sort of asked to come back and do this last film. And she said, oh, "Okay, sure, why not?" And then, yeah, and this
0: was their only color film, so at least yeah. she has that to her credit as well. Uh, I wasn't all that impressed with Van Heffen as the as Joe, the little kid. Were you?
1: No, we've definitely seen much better child actors in in movies on this list and then just all other movies that we've seen a million times more recent movies as well so nah he didn't as i said none of the acting overall really impressed me that much except jack palance just being jack palance (laughs) but aside from that the acting was just okay i thought throughout
0: that said i do think it's a phenomenal western i mean you don't really go to westerns for the acting you know you go for the you go for the gunfights you go for the bar fights you go to see the lone gunman who's never gonna go astray he's steadfast in his uh moral uprighteousness and he's gonna do the right thing every time so that was uh front to back it's a fantastic western
1: true it really is that classic western has all those classic western tropes and exactly what you're looking for is you say right All right, well, let's move on then to Seven Samurai from 1954, a movie which inspired a lot of Westerns, actually. It is a Japanese film directed by Akira Kurosawa, which premiered in Japan on April 26th, 1954, but it didn't get a release in the United States until July of 1956. Kurosawa had been wanting to make a film about samurai for a while, originally thinking about doing one about a day in the life of a samurai until he found a story about samurai defending farmers. Supposedly, it was originally going to be called Six Samurai, but then he started to realize that six very serious samurai sitting around for, it's a very long movie, for almost four hours, <laughs> might be a little boring. So he cast uh, Toshiro Mifune and basically told him to go nuts in playing the part of the crazy samurai Kikuchi-u. I, I, However, i I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. In any case, the film did very well in Japan when it was released and eventually came to be recognized as a masterpiece around the world when it began to be released in other countries. It currently holds a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, for instance. Mm -hmm. It's also obviously been incredibly influential, most notably on what can basically be described as a remake, the 1960 movie The Magnificent Seven, but also influential on numerous other tales, and including a lot of westerns. The story is that it's a period of unrest in in medieval Japan. A A group of bandits keep terrorizing a local village of farmers and stealing all the food whenever they harvest. So starving and desperate, they try to reach out and find some ronin, who are basically samurai without a home, to help them defend the village. But there are tensions when they first get to the village as the farmers are almost equally frightened of the samurai as they're of the bandits. So this group of samurai and the villagers have to learn to work together and form a defense for when the bandits inevitably come back. What were your thoughts, Zach?
0: I really, really, really liked it. I'd never seen it before. Um, As most people are, I'm a little trepidatious when I embark on watching an almost four-hour movie. Just because, you know, you're going to spend half your day watching this, so it better be damn good. But it it was. It was. I was not bored for one second of it, despite the fact that the only Japanese I know is from sushi restaurants and the stick song Mr. Roboto. But, yeah, uh, I had no trouble following it. I don't know if there's different subtitles for different versions, but the translation was so expertly done because they were using English idioms all the time that you could really understand and get involved with, and I'm sure it wasn't a direct word-for-word translation because that wouldn't have made any sense. But I loved the fact that they said, like, horse shit, and there was all kinds of slang terms that only the Western world would understand, but you could still see the emotion the actors are portraying and you could follow along so easily with the story.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, I that also stood out to me some of the some of the language that was used in the translation, like when the the father is. I mean, I guess this is maybe a word that exists in in all languages, but the father when he's berating his girl when he finds her in bed with one of the samurais and he starts calling her a slut and stuff like mm-hmm. that, that. That sort of stood out to me because it didn't. Seemed like that's what I should have been hearing in this Japanese movie, but of course that, <laughs> that must have been the translation. So the the translation was really good, and you're right. Some of those lines were were just really well done. There's one part right near the very beginning when the villagers go go to the elder of the village, this old man, and they they and he tells them his plan. Well, we should go out and and get some samurai, but we don't have any money, so we'll just have to offer them food. And they say well, how, how are we going to get samurai to work for just food? They're a proud bunch. And, he, and his <laughs> reply is, find some hungry samurai. Right. <laughs> it's just a, a great line.
0: Yeah, there's some really like cool, like, badass, like, legitimately badass lines. And that's not even to mention the filmmaking. I mean, this the, the, the picture, cinematography-wise, was so clear and crisp. And between that and the storyline, the violence, the cursing, the subject matter, it was a good 20 years ahead of its time.
1: Yeah, I agree. The um, It's interesting. You mentioned it, just how you, you didn't feel bored, and I didn't feel bored either watching it. I th- I'd actually seen it before, so this was my second time through it. But for instance, the whole kind of getting the band together part mm-hmm. of the story that's basically an hour of movie time yeah, where yeah. a lot of movies would just do that in five minutes. And yet it didn't seem like wasted time. It seemed like all those minutes were necessary to explain the story about who these guys were and where each of the samurai were coming from. So it was it was about three and a half hours long in total, but it the time just flew by for me. I agree. It didn't seem to drag at all despite the length. And that's obviously a a credit to Kurosawa and the kind of story he was telling.
0: Yeah, the pacing was excellent. And there was a a sequence kind of um, after the band got together and they got to the village where they kept showing the map of the village. And it really gave you a great sense of the geography of the battle to come. And a lot of movies that have to do with war don't really do that. But... This was a clinic in the use of medieval defense tactics, and it was just so fascinating to see them just meticulously plan out this battle without it being dull or boring or slow.
1: And I loved how they also gave us a sense because a lot of times in movies like that, you can lose track of what's actually happening with all the different action, but they kept going back to that map and that guy basically had his checklist of number of bandits they killed. So you knew, okay, this is where we are in the battle. They're doing all right. They keep, they keep knocking off these bandits. I thought, I thought that was pretty clever too.
0: Yeah. We are right there with them in the trenches as they go along. And I think the length of the movie is actually a plus in this case where it and a lot of, you know, epic three and a half, four hour movies, it can kind of drag down in times just because of the hubris of the filmmakers. But I think this needed to be a four hour movie.
1: Agreed. Agreed. And I will say on the filmmaking there, you mentioned that he was probably about 20 years ahead of his time. There were definitely some kinds of shots that, that I hadn't really seen before, and, and certain angles on the shots, too. It almost s- struck me at times, I thought, oh, wait a minute, is he breaking the 180 degree rule a couple of mm. times? But he wasn't. It's just he'd show different aspects of the action from different ways that at first I, it took me back a second because... It wasn't something, uh, at least so far in the century series. Some of those shots and angles weren't things that we had been used to seeing before. For instance, he'd show he'd show the action. There's a scene at the beginning where you see a samurai fighting this guy, and he'd show the action and them circling each other, and then he'll cut to the crowd, but it's a shot from the side of the crowd mm-hmm. watching the action, or behind, or something instead of just what you would often see, which is just flipping back and forth. Okay. One shot here to the action, one shot on the the faces of the crowd. He'd be showing the crowd from a different angle. And some of those things I thought were interesting and innovative.
0: Yeah. My favorite shot of the entire movie and the one that actually got a emotional rise out of me was the shot on the burial mound after Heihachi dies. Uh, That's the, that's the first samurai to fall. And just the way it was framed, I mean, you could hang that in an art gallery easily, because I mean, the samurai sword planted on top of this giant pile of dirt and everybody circling around it, crying and just feeling such remorse for this guy was really moving. I
1: agree. Yeah, that that was definitely the standout shot of the of the movie for sure.
0: And one of my uh, one of the reasons why I was so trepidatious going into this was because. When you think of samurai, you think of quiet, solemn stoicism. But this had so much wit, humor, and sarcasm just all over it. And, I, yeah, I was really impressed at how it, how Kurosawa managed to balance the humor and the action and the solemnity. Kyuzo, I hope I'm saying that right, was, like, the... Uh, prototypical samurai because he was like serious stone-faced but everyone else had real personality I mean especially obviously Kikyochi, uh, Kik- Kikuchiyo. <laughs> but uh, I really loved uh, Shimada too like the leader of the group
1: that, definitely they all had these really Aside from the, the the one really stoic guy, as you mentioned, they all have they all had these really charming smiles that mm-hmm. that Curacao obviously brought out the best in them to where they'd be reacting to something that's happening, and and they each had this sometimes mischievous grin, sometimes just sort of a knowing smile. They're, and those really just brought out the personalities without even hearing them speak or, or knowing what they were saying.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was really disappointed when Shiroshi died because he was my favorite of the seven, and he died kind of early on, because he was like the jovial, like bring everybody together. He always had that big, big smile on his face. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. His his death was pretty sad for sure.
0: My only criticism is the bald caps on the villagers were <laughs> very, very, very bad. <laughs>
1: Agreed, agreed
0: <laughs> But for all the people that Kurosawa needed to really showcase They actually shaved their heads So that wasn't too much of a distraction But the, yeah, that's the only real, real flaw that I noticed Was that the ball caps were laughable
1: Yeah, needed more damn commitment from his extras
0: Yep <laughs>
1: <laughs> Come on guys, commitment to your bit
0: Alright, so now on to our last movie for part one of the 50s on the Waterfront, it was directed by Elia Kazan, written by Brad Schulberg, and starring Marlon Brando, Carl Madden, Malden, Lee J. Cobb, Rod Steger, and Eva Marie Saint in her film debut. While Brando's breakout performance came out in uh, 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, this was his really true star-making effort. His method acting totally changed the game as far as acting on film. Instead of overblown, melodramatic, theater-like performances, actors began to shift to a more understated, realistic approach. This is what made Brando so great and well ahead of his time as a performer. This film was nominated for 12 Oscars, winning 8, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor for Brando. It's number 19 on the AFI 100 list, down 11 spots from number 8 on the original list. On the Waterfront tells the story of Terry Malloy, played by Brando, a lowly dock worker and ex-boxer. Everyone in Hoboken, New Jersey is under the thumb of ruthless mob boss Johnny Friendly. Terry's promising boxing career went down the drain when he threw a fight to earn Friendly some easy dough, a decision that Terry really regrets later. While everyone knows Friendly is the head of a large racket, they all play D&D, or deaf and dumb to save their own necks. After Terry is unwittingly dragged into becoming involved in the murder of his old friend Joey, the strong but sensitive Terry slowly undergoes a spiritual transformation throughout the film that sees him finally stand up to Friendly, beating him in a climactic fistfight when he's outnumbered, and change his small corner of the world for the better. Have at it, Martin.
1: Obviously, this this film is largely about brando it's and he really was different especially going through and and watching these movies as as we have been doing from from the 20s on up just the the natural way that he acts must have been such a game changer at the time and was such a game changer and you can really see it you just see it on the screen how mm-hmm. it's a, it's a totally different kind of performance that we've seen before well in in that it doesn't feel like a performance you watch Brando, and all of a sudden, everybody else who's acting feels like they're performing. They're doing right. something. Brando just seems to be inhabiting his character, and yeah, obviously he sucks you in. Yeah, a lot. Of, obviously, a lot of that is is the method acting stuff. The the Stanislavski method, and Brando himself was taught by one of Stanislavski's pupils, Stella Adler. It's uh, Brando is just is just incredible. I. Obviously again the, and the other thing about on the waterfront we touched on this a little bit on the house and America's an American Activities Committee bit at the beginning is a lot of is a lot of made about the parallels between Elia Kazan the director's real experiences during that time and the story about a man gathering the courage to inform on the mob mm-hmm. and yeah okay on the surface sure but I think that's, I think that's also Kazan trying to sort of assuage his own guilt rather than rather than making a real statement. Because <laughs> obviously, there's a big difference between speaking up against mobsters and murderers and selling out friends and colleagues for their political opinions.
0: Right?
1: You know, one's courage and the other's bowing to pressure. So they're really kind of the opposite. So, you know, nice try, Elliot Kazan, but you're no Terry Malloy. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie itself is the the movie itself is quite engaging i i really loved carl malden as the as the dockside priest guy mm-hmm. he's he's really good It uh, there there's a there's a lot of impressive things to this it's it's interesting the original pass had a script and then it got rewritten uh was was under a different title and it was by arthur miller Mm-hmm. And obviously, it had a lot of rewrites, but I wonder how much of that was retained in the script that made it to screen because it still at times has that kind of stage play feeling to it. I don't know if mm-hmm. you got that.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think that's. I'll, I think that happens a lot with these movies, these kind of movies, though, because if it's not like a broad, sweeping epic or an action movie, then they tend to go the opposite route and do the intimate kind of play type setting. Yeah, I also loved uh, Carl Malden as the priest. He was the moral compass while Lee J. Cobb, who we'll meet again later, was Johnny Friendly, the gangster, and they're the polar opposites. And that's when good moral dilemma movies always work because If you have two characters that are polar opposites and you have the protagonist right in the middle kind of vacillating between the two, then that makes for really compelling drama. And that's exactly where Brando's Terry Malloy sat. So I think that's what made this movie really compelling other than obviously Brando's acting.
1: Yeah, it really illustrated the internal conflict in the character, which isn't always an easy thing to depict. In in a movie, a lot of movies have tried and failed to do that in different mm-hmm. ways. This movie obviously massively succeeded. For me, the the standout scene that everybody remembers obviously is the "I could have been a contender, I could have been somebody instead of a bum," which is what I am. That whole part. But for me, which the most will... oh well, let, let's listen to that scene. Yeah, let's, yeah
0: let's let's go ahead.
2: And listen to that. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. You remember that night in the garden, he came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night, I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it.
0: And that's number three on the AFI 100 quotes list. And and definitely well-deserving.
1: That is a great scene and just... It gives you a lot of the backstory about him and, and it tells you a little bit about where he is and why he's about to make the turn that his character does in terms mm-hmm. of in terms of what he does. But for me, the, the the scene that I loved most in the entire movie is is that speech that Carl Malden's character gives right after the guy Dugan is killed, mm-hmm. when they're standing in the hold of the ship and he just gives that just that incredible impassioned speech to all the other dock workers about basically standing up for what's right that that speech for me was the standout
0: part of the movie I loved that part yeah let's uh play a little clip of that too
2: I came down here to keep a promise I gave K.O. my word that if he stood up to the mob I'd stand up with him all the way and now K.O. Dugan is dead he was one of those fellas who had the gift uh, standing up, but this time they fixed him. Oh, they, they fixed him for good this time. Unless it was an accident, like Big Mac says. Some people think the crucifixion only took place on Calvary. But they better wise up. Taking Joey Doyle's life to stop him from testifying is a crucifixion. And dropping a sling on K.O. Dugan because he was ready to spill his guts tomorrow, that's a crucifixion. And every time the mob puts the pressure on a good man, tries to stop him from doing his duty as a citizen, it's a crucifixion. And anybody who sits around and lets it happen keeps silent about something he knows has happened, shares the guilt of it just as much as the Roman soldier who appears to pledge our Lord to see if he did it.
0: Yeah, that's just uh, really inspiring. Like I said, he's the moral compass, and... For him to put his neck on the line like that, I mean, even though he's a a man of the cloth, he knows he's on the line. And, you know, uh, Johnny Friendly's not going to have any compunctions about killing a priest. So for him to do that is uh, really heroic.
1: My my one little nitpick with the movie, and it's pretty small, but it's that at times the score I found to be a little overpowering and Mm, I I don't think I don't think it's a problem with the score itself it was scored by Leonard Bernstein one of the most famous and and incredible musicians of the 20th century but I think it's the sound mixing like it seemed Mm. at times in the more dramatic moments that they just needed to let the story and acting carry it and instead this this really loud overpowering music would come in and, and it kind of ruined some of the tension in the film for me. So that, that yeah. was my one small nitpick about the movie.
0: Yeah, I noticed that too, especially leading up to the death of Joey scene. Like It's like, ba 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 like really, really loud uh, brass and percussion and everything. And all we're doing is seeing Marlon Brando walk down the street yeah. And we don't know what's about to happen, and it kind of gives it away that something really major is about to happen. There's no real suspense because the score is just going absolutely nuts, and then we see Joey fall off the roof and we're like, "Oh, okay, well, we knew something was going to happen." <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> By that time, yeah, the score did a disservice to the movie, especially in that respect.
1: Yeah, so maybe half blame for the score and half blame for the sound mixer. Who That score, it's, it could have, even if they had just toned down the mixing a little bit, it mm-hmm. might not have been so bad, but it was just really overpowering at times. But anyway, that's a small thing because aside from that, it's a pretty incredible movie.
0: I agree. So that's it for part one of the 1950s podcast. We'll see you in about a week from now for part two where we're going to do what, Martin?
1: For part two, we are going to do Rebel Without a Cause, 12 Angry Men, Vertigo, Some Like It Hot, and Ben-Hur. And then we'll get into a few of the segments that you know and love, like Who Missed the Cut, Either Or, and Who Won the Decade. We should also note that we are finally up on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and... What's the other anywhere else that you listen to?
0: podcasts? Stitcher, yes. Anywhere that you can listen to podcasts. And goddamn, it feels good to finally say that. <laughs> yes.
1: I feel I feel somehow validated now. My whole yes. <laughs> so hopefully that makes it easier for you people out there to go and listen. So please do.
0: Yep, just search unsolicited film reviews, and obviously it'll be the first one to pop up because our name's so long. <laughs> so. As always, you can find us on social media, on Instagram at unsolicited underscore film underscore reviews. Find us on Facebook at Unsolicited Film Reviews. You can find me personally on Instagram at Zach T. Miller.
1: You can find me at J. Martin Cook, Cook with an E.
0: And we will see you next time on the Unsolicited Film Reviews podcast century series, The 50s Part (laughs) 2. You have been listening to the Unsolicited Film Reviews Podcast, hosted by Zach Miller and Martin Cook, with original music by Martin Cook, and original artwork by Dan Ong. Sponsored by No One.
1: We'll see you next time.